interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. All right, what have we said so far? What I've said, what I've tried to um, lay before you is that is sort of the picture of the story of the Bible. And that is that it's centered around the notion of God establishing his will on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom of God. And that there is a player in this that's ever so central by God's design, by God's choice. And that player is the human race. The instrument by which God ordained his kingdom to come to the earth is humanity. And uh, I know that sounds bizarre in many ways, but it's not because it's not in the Bible. It's because we're the bizarre ones. How's that? Um, uh, frankly, I think that's really the truth. Um, but, the, but the reality is, is that that is something I hope that gives you a little bit of, of um, enthusiasm maybe about your life. That maybe what you're doing with your life really has some significance to it. And uh, I know that for me, when I finally saw these kinds of things in this way in the Bible, it radically changed the way I looked at my human existence. Uh, Frankly, I just thought in terms basically of making it through life and just waiting for Jesus to rescue me from this mess. Okay, now it's still a mess. But um, But I'm understanding why I'm here. And why we are here. And um, it's a very important thing, if you ask me. And so the image of God was given these two main roles that, they would, um, that the image would have in order to accomplish God's will in heaven being done on earth, throughout the earth. And they, of course, are the multiplication and the dominion here. And um, we have mentioned the fact that at first this was a wonderful gift God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He did not curse them and say it. Blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. But we also mentioned one side of the fact that sin really did corrupt things terribly. And let me just relate how sin affects both of these rather than just one of these. We'll call this the the barrier or the influence of sin. I'm not much of an artist. If I had my PowerPoints here, it would look a lot better. Okay? But um, basically, we said that multiplication had to continue because, I mean, after all, that's the way God decided he was going to bring honor to himself, was by filling the world with his image. But it became painful and hard, frustrating, um, to the point that, you know, it's just a difficult thing to be a mother or a father. And it's even difficult to be a spiritual mother and father. If you've ever birthed people spiritually, you know how difficult it is to... Um, see them turn away from Christ, for example. Uh, Billy Graham one time estimated that 80% of the people that he called to Christ and who professed Christ turned away. Well, that, that's heartbreaking when you think about people perhaps that you've poured your life into, maybe your own children, and they turn away from the Savior. And you go, my goodness, why? what's the purpose of all this? Well, what's the point? And that's the pain that God brought to the human race as a curse this time, as a curse, um, and as a response to our sinfulness. But remember that it wasn't just Eve who was cursed. Adam was also cursed. Remember this in Genesis 3? And God turns to him and he says, by the sweat of your brow, in pain you will eke out an existence. But don't worry, he said to Adam, it'll be all right. If you just work harder, you'll be able to lift yourself up out of this mire and everything will be good, right? No, that's not what he says. That's the NIV. No, it's not the NIV. <laughs> What, what is that? What is it that God actually said? He said, nope, you'll work yourself to death. From dust you came to dust you'll return. Work yourself into a grave. And many of you recognize that pain and that frustration, don't you? Uh, that's the kind of frustration that it comes to people as they seek to have dominion in whatever field of work, whatever legitimate cultural experience they have. Um, and for example, the person that works for a company for 25 years and comes in one Monday morning and has a pink slip on the desk. 
not even anticipating, not even imagining it. A person that's worked all their lives to secure retirement, to watch the stock market drop like it has. That's the frustration of dominion under sin. And the question that you have to ask and that the Bible asks is, what's next? I mean, what do you do about a world that's like this? That it's physically corrupted. The earth itself is corrupted because of this. And we in our multiplication and our dominion, even though we're supposed to keep doing it, it's hard and it's frustrating and it's painful. The wonderful thing is that God did not leave us in that condition. He provided a way, a path of restoration, of restoration to the dignity we had in the very beginning. As my book is entitled, The Dignity for Which We Were Designed. A way to get to that, a way to reach that. Now, that's the good side of this. That's the positive side. The, the sort of downside of this is that he didn't snap his fingers and do it all at once. I don't know why God did this. If I were he, I wouldn't do it this way. But, you know, aren't you glad I'm not God? Um, you know, the, the fact is, is that God chose to do this ever so slowly. Sort of step by step by step. Moving this way and then moving a little bit this way and moving that way. And what he did was he developed this whole long history that we call the history of salvation. That's Bible history that tells the story of how God unfolds this process of redeeming a people for himself who will fill the world one day and have dominion over it in his son, the great son of David. And that really is the goal. And then this long process is what we have to sort of spell out now. And the glorious thing, as the title of this session, this is now session three, it's on the administration of the kingdom, is that God determined that he was going to administer his kingdom in ways that were parallel to the way kings in the ancient world administered their kingdoms. Remember that from last night? The topic was covenants. That the phrase covenant while we often pour modern concepts into it, if you go back to the days of the Bible, you discover that it was an ancient reality. It, these covenants in the Bible that God made between himself and special people, he, these were very much parallel to the way ancient kings had treaties with other nations. So let's, let's unfold that, that parallel just a little bit. Remember, just thinking of an earthly empire. Empires tend to expand and contract and move in one direction or another direction to have times when the economy is good and times the economy is bad, times of peace, times of war. And the fact is, is that as all those variables would happen in the various empires of the ancient world, kings had to administer. They had to rule. They had to arrange things in ways that would move and attempts to move their kingdoms forward. Now, you can imagine there was not a single, there was not a single uh, emperor in the ancient world who would not want to have his empire rule everything, okay? And so there was, that's, you know, you all, don't you often wonder why war happens and why people just can't leave, leave each other alone? It just seems to be something about us. And this was certainly true in the ancient world. And can you imagine when, the, when there were no early warning systems and things like that, the, how horrific it would be to live and suddenly one day realize that around the corner is an army of several thousand people coming just set on destroying you with no warning whatsoever. And it could happen at any time. And that's the kind of world that people lived in in the times of the Bible. And so these kingdoms, as they expanded and contracted war and peace, good times, bad times, the kings would set up international treaties. They would set up arrangements that they would, by which they would govern the people within their own kingdoms and relate to people outside the kingdoms, especially as they incorporated new kingdoms. A kingdom on the move was always one that would incorporate or annex another system and another one and another one and another one. And as they did this, they would always make these treaties. Now, the treaties, as I laid them out for you last night, were, they're different types of them, but they follow some very basic patterns that are repeated over and over again. And let me see if I can just sort of give you a sense of what these treaties were like. No one ever really told the truth in these treaties. 
You know, they always spoke in terms of how kind and how wonderful the king, the emperor, who was stomping on other people, had been to these people. Aren't you glad and weren't you blessed for me to have you have my army stomp on you? That's basically what they were saying to them. But the way they did this was much nicer. They would say things like, I'm such a great king and I have done such wonderful things. Um, you will see this to be true, if you, even if you don't see it yet. You'll have my protection. I'll take care of you. The gods, they really like me. And they'll take care of you, too, if you're faithful to me. And so I'm going to do all these wonderful things. But now let me tell you the rules of this relationship. I'll do this, but you have to do that. And, of course, mostly it was pay your taxes. Give them your young maidens for servants. Give them a certain number of soldiers, things like that. This, of course, is why uh, you know in the Bible that Judah and Israel would often rebel, say, against Assyria. They had become vassal nations of Assyria, the great empire. And they had treaties with Assyria. And then Israel, as soon as they noticed that the Assyrians were a little bit weak or maybe they hadn't been threatened in the last week or two, they'd rebel against their great suzerains up there in Assyria. So eventually Assyrians just got tired of it and came and and destroyed them, destroyed Samaria, the capital of the north, and even came right up to the gate of Jerusalem, if you remember those days in the days of Hezekiah. And that was because they were breaking these treaties that they had made. Well, the king would say, I'm a great king, and I've done wonderful things for you, and you have these requirements, and if you meet these requirements, well, then I will do good things for you. Oh, I'll, I'll send money and I'll send food and I'll make sure that, the, that those bandits that are up in the mountains, that they're kept away. My soldiers will keep them away. I'll do all kinds of blessings for you. But if you don't pay your taxes, I'm going to send my army not to protect you, but to destroy you. I'll curse you. And then they would enter into these agreements and they would go through ceremonies of oaths, making oaths to each other. And then the covenant would be established. Now, all of that may sound rather odd to us, but it's really not. We basically do the same thing today when we establish treaties with nations, even when they're among so-called equal nations. We tend to express the kinds of agreements that we have and what's going to happen if you violate the treaty and those kinds of things. And even if they're not explicitly stated in treaties, they are implied, as we find out, as nations break treaties and the like. So this is not a foreign concept to us. It's not weird or bizarre. And it should not be bizarre to you to learn and to know that this is the way God administered his kingdom was by making covenant treaties with his people. He was declaring himself to be the great suzerain, the great czar, the great Caesar of the universe. And he had his little kingdom down here on this earth called Israel and he made agreements with his people and he established these great blessings if they would be faithful to him and these curses if they flagrantly rebelled against him. Now, you might be interested in knowing this. This is just one little sideline here. But in the ancient world, there was this great job that certain people got. And the great job was that they were to be um, ambassadors or they were to be um, people who would mediate between the great king and those little nations. Because you can imagine that you didn't want to make a war every single time somebody broke something in the treaty, right? I mean, to do that's very expensive. We know that even as the United States. It's very going to be very expensive to have a war. And so you really don't want to spend all that money and you don't want to sacrifice all those soldiers if you don't have to. You'd much rather be able to negotiate a violation. And so you would send in the ancient world, you would send these people, these ambassadors, to warn the little country. And you say, oh, watch out now. You violated this, you violated that, you violated that. And if you don't turn around, you don't change, the king is going to come and he's going to punish you. But it would be prolonged and it would be prolonged until finally just could not work it out any other way. And boom, they'd come and destroy like the Babylonians would do or the Assyrians would do. That should remind you of an office in the Bible. A, a particular type of person in the Bible, can you imagine who that is? Starts with a P. And the prophets. That's exactly what the prophets were. Prophets were ambassadors of the great king to his vassal nation. 
And they would come warning the people, you're violating the covenant, you're violating the covenant, watch out, he's not going to take this forever, he's been patient with you, he sent one prophet after another, after another, after another, trying to get you to repent. If you repent, great blessings from the great king. If you don't repent, he is going to destroy you. So much to the point that when the Assyrians or the Babylonians destroyed the people of Israel... God actually said, you think it's the Assyrians. It's not. You think it's the Babylonians. It's not. They are just my army. I'm the one that did it, the Lord said. Don't let anybody be mistaken about this. If you're my image, my redeemed image, your responsibility is very high. And so the prophets, it was serious business, even as prophets of the New Testament are very serious business today. Because preachers, for example, that's what they do. Preachers, on Sunday morning, believe it or not, that's what the preacher is doing. Now, he's not infallible or inerrant, sorry, guys. But, uh, like Bible prophets were, but they're speaking the word to the people of God and saying, God has done wonderful things for you. He's been very gracious for you in Christ. Now, he's also saying to you, be faithful to him. And then the warning goes out. Those that rebel against God, they will suffer judgment. And those who remain faithful to the Lord, they will receive his great blessings. That's basically what preaching is, isn't it? The announcement of the good news that those who trust in Christ will be saved. And so that's what we do. So it's, it's a part of who we are as covenant people in this relationship that we have. Now, what we want to do is we want to sort of walk through how God establishes these covenants and what they look like in the Bible. Because the wonderful thing about these covenants is they never were utterly thrown away. They still are in operation. They are still important in your life and my life. Now, I can remember, I don't do this anymore, but I can remember years ago, I used to be so busy that I would be driving around in my car and if I had things that I needed, I would put them in the passenger seat next to me. Okay, so I'm just doing, 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 going, 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 going. Then my wife would get in the car and, of course, here's her seat all filled up with papers and books. So what she would do with them is put them in the back seat, which was fine because we only had one daughter and as long as it was just half of the back seat filled up with library books and things, then it was fine. All three of us could ride in the car. But sooner or later, you get to the point that there were so many things in the back seat, there was no place for our daughter to ride. So then we would take, I didn't know this often, but they would take the things and put them in the trunk. Okay, then once every three or four months, I'd get this notion, it's time to clean the trunk out. And it's amazing the kinds of uh, treasures I'd find in that trunk. Library books that I'd kept out for six months to a year, things like that. Huh? Papers that students had given me. And, you know, I said, you didn't turn in the paper. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. There it was in the trunk. Things like that. Okay. Um, the treasures. No other professors have ever done that, have they? Uh, okay. Nah. Um, but, you know, those are the treasures you find in the trunk. And in some respects, I think that's uh, what I'm going to ask you to do. Because what we're going to talk about are Old Testament covenants. And they often feel to Christian people like, well, that's stuff that's um, back in the trunk. You know, you kind of, you learned about these things as children. You know, that when you used to have the pictures and you used to have the little wooden house that you put the prophet's room on top of and then took it off and they showed you, oh, isn't that nice kids? You go, yeah, it's great, great. Wish my daddy would do that. Those kinds of things. But as adults, we should be better than that. We should be more sophisticated than that. But it's not true. As adults, we need to go back to these old days and look in the trunk and pull these treasures out because they impinge on your life and they impinge on my life. Now, let's see if we can sort of scope this out a little bit by simply noting how the covenant dynamics worked in general and then we'll try to unfold this as we uh, see the Bible. It's often helpful, in my mind anyway, to think of covenants like a box here or like a square or a rectangle, I should say, since I'm in an academic community. That's not a square. Okay. Um, it's it's, it's uh, unintentional. It doesn't matter. Okay. But as having as representing four main dynamics of covenant life. But before we look at those dynamics, let's remember the larger picture. The covenants really are designed to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So here you have God 
God's reign in heaven, becoming God's reign on earth. And how is that to take place? It's to take place through humanity. And what are the two things that humanity is to do? The two, um, the two things are, they are to multiply more images of God, to fill the world up with images of God. So there's this numerical expansion of the, key, of the image of God. And there is this other side, the dominion side, which represents more or less a geographical expansion of the kingdom of God through the image of God. So these are the means by which God ordained in his wisdom to bring about the reign, his reign on earth as it is in heaven. But the administration of this was through a series of covenants. And these covenants all have basically the same dynamic. Now, this is where I think sometimes Christians are mistaken, frankly. And that is they tend to think of the different covenants in the Bible as being radically different from each other. They are different. But there is a fundamental dynamic that's going on in all of them in one way or another. And let's talk about that dynamic. In the first place, all the covenants in the Bible emphasize um, divine kindness. Just like ancient Near Eastern kings would talk about how kind they had been, how benevolent they had been, how merciful they had been. This is the way the Bible always talks about God. In fact, just to sort of say this quickly, think about your own Christian life and how the Bible makes it very clear. How did you become a Christian? By God's kindness. How do you live the Christian life and succeed as a Christian person? By God's kindness. Through and through, your relationship with God is supported and energized and is made possible by the grace and mercy of God. This is not something that just initiates your relationship. It is something that sustains it and brings it to its culmination. The mercy and grace of God. So in this sense, God is like those ancient Near Eastern kings, but in another sense, his mercy and kindness is much greater and much more thoroughly saturating the entire covenant relationship. So please don't hear me say that God's covenants start with grace but end up with you doing a lot of hard work. It's not true. Now, it's going to involve you doing a lot of work, but at the same time, anytime anyone is successful at anything as a Christian, how do they do that? By what means? Yeah, God's grace. Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and do his own good pleasure. Yes? You are to work out your own salvation, but always remembering that it is God working in you. Yes? His mercy, his power, his grace, Holy Spirit in you. Okay, so the divine benevolence in this case is enormously important and must never be forgotten. And this is true of every covenant in the Bible. But on the other side, it's not just divine kindness, but human loyalty is required. Human loyalty, responsiveness. Now, again, this is like those ancient Near Eastern treaties in that the great suzerain or the great emperor would always have requirements of the people, requirements of loyalty and of faithfulness. Um, you can see this in the Bible. One of the greatest examples of this is the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And one gospel says, and strength. Okay. Um, you might be interested in knowing this, that in the ancient world of the Bible, when kings spoke to their people, they often told them that what they wanted them to do, this is going to sound so strange, is they wanted their subjects to love them. Can you imagine George Bush coming on TV and saying, I want you to love me. Of course not. Respect me, obey me, follow me, you name it. But love him? Mm, don't think so. But that was exactly the kind of political language that was used in the days of the Bible when emperors would make these covenant bonds with people. They would say, I want you to love me. And by that they meant they wanted loyalty, but they wanted more than just faithfulness or they wanted more than just obedience. They wanted affection. 
They wanted them to, much like we would say, love their country as symbolized in the emperor, to adore this emperor, to admire him, to be loyally in love with him. This love was to be a loyalty to and a love for like mom and apple pie kind of thing. You know, I just love it. And I love my emperor. And it's remarkable that when the Lord speaks to his people in Deuteronomy and Jesus calls it the greatest commandment, that Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God. Unfortunately, many evangelicals think that simply means you shall obey the Lord your God or you shall learn about the Lord your God. That's a nice one, huh? We say, oh yeah, the greatest commandment is to obey God. No, it's not. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. But don't think about that as just as a sort of schmaltzy sentimentalism. It's not that. In the, in the context of the Bible, it means a loyal love, a love of loyalty and faithfulness. So there's that requirement, you see, throughout the whole Bible. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it's there throughout the whole of Scripture. Yes, God is merciful, but humans must be loyal in this relationship. And then what, what governs or what re- affects this relationship as divine kindness is balanced out with human loyalty is something like this. Uh, this is, the Bible speaks often of great blessings of the covenant and the Bible often speaks of the curses of the covenant. Blessings and curses. And it's not as if um, we should be thinking about this in sort of equal terms or anything like that. God is very merciful and very kind. And especially once you become a part of his people, he's very inclined toward mercy. Unfortunately, sometimes when you hear when you first hear about the idea that the Bible's covenants are always involving blessings and curses, you get this strange notion that starts popping up. I think it's because the notion was there already, if implicit, if not explicit, of a sort of quid pro quo relationship with God. You know, sort of, he loves me, he loves me not. That when I'm good, he loves me. When I'm bad, he doesn't love me. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I'm blessed, I'm cursed, I'm blessed, I'm cursed, I'm blessed, I'm cursed, I'm blessed, I'm cursed. I hope you don't live that way. Because that's not the way the Bible wants you to live. The scriptures from beginning to end want us to believe that if we are the covenanted people of God, if we are special to him and brought into this kind of relationship, it means that God is patient and long-suffering and slow to anger and abounding in mercy, Joel chapter 2, yes, and loves to relent from sending calamity. Remember how I told you ancient kings were hesitant to send their armies? Well, God's hesitant to send his armies too because he just is patient and he's kind and he's long-suffering. So it's not that God throws away the scales utterly for his covenant people, but he's very kind, he's very merciful and very patient, just like you would expect a good father or mother to be. I mean, don't you... (laughs) This is often what happens when people have their first child. They really do because they want to be good parents, they really do have a sort of quid pro quo, tit for tat kind of relationship with their child. They'll, they'll punish the child when it does something wrong and they'll bless the child when it does something good. Positive, negative, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, positive. You know, and the poor child is neurotic. That's what happened to your firstborn. Okay? <laughs> but by the time you have your fifth child, you kind of go, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, oh, you're my kid. I love you. You know, and he breaks a glass. You're not going whack him across the table, you just say, well, he's a child. And in some respects, that's the way the Bible presents God. It's not that he doesn't care about what you do, but he's just very patient and very kind. And it's a wonderful thing that he's kind to you, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm glad he's kind to me. I sure don't deserve anything. And so this really is, in some respects, the dynamic that is at work at bringing about the kingdom of God as God makes covenants with his people. Now, mind you, I said covenants in the plural. And that's because there's more than one of these things, more than one covenant. And what we want to do is kind of walk our way through the various covenants in the Bible because each of these covenants in, in an appropriate way, in a ways that are appropriate to the time and to the setting, they emphasize different things in the lives of the people of God. They stress different things. It's not as if one 
is given to replace the other. It's not as if one is given to counteract the other. It's not that one is positive and one is negative, but that they are all appropriate for where the people of God and where the kingdom of God is. Remember, they're all designed to bring about this fulfillment of the multiplication and the dominion of the image of God. That's always the subtext here. That's always the goal. And the covenants are designed to move them forward toward that goal. But moving forward is something that is done appropriately. Let me give you an analogy that's often used by theologians. God, being a great king, father, is aware that his children need to be treated in ways that are age appropriate. Isn't that the problem of having more than one child? You have a 15-year-old and an 8-year-old. The 8-year-old wants to do what the 15-year-old gets to do, right? I, I want to stay up till 11 o'clock. I don't want to have to go to bed at 8 o'clock. Why do I have to go to bed at 8 o'clock? Well, it's because you're 8 years old. That's why. That's why you have to go to bed at 8 or 9 o'clock. And that's why your 15-year-old brother or sister can stay up till midnight. That's because he's 15 and you're 8. Well, it doesn't make any sense to an 8-year-old, but it makes a lot of sense to the 15-year-old. And it makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it? As a parent. Well, the Bible says that the people of God as a whole, were like children growing up. And that the history, this is in Galatians 3, that the history of the Bible is like the growing up of a child. And the reason that things look different in the Bible early on than they do later on is not that God was scratching his head, trying to find the best way to do this, and I just wonder if I, well, that didn't work, and well, it did that, and that didn't work either. Tried that. That didn't work. So let me give this Jesus thing a shot. That wasn't it. Okay, that's not it. What actually happened is, is that God was doing things in age appropriate ways as people could handle it. Just to give you one quick example of this to convince you that it's true. Do you remember when Jesus is asked the question, um, why should people on what grounds should people divorce? And um, Jesus' response is, well, you know, only because of fornication. And then he says, they said, well, why does, why does Moses say to give, her, give the woman a certificate of divorce? Do you remember what Jesus says back to them? Because of the hardness of their hearts, God permitted them to do this. But it was not so from the beginning. You see, that's the age appropriateness. It's because of the immaturity of the people of God at that time, when Deuteronomy was written, the weakness of the people, the hardness of their hearts, that God said, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. I can't, as a, can't take you as a four-year-old and treat you like you're 25. So I'll just let you color outside the lines. But you 25-year-olds, don't you dare come outside the lines. You with me on this? So there's this, tr this is true throughout the whole Bible. That every single thing in the Bible is age-appropriate. Now, that should make you pause for a moment and say, well then, what's all that old stuff got to do with me then, since I'm now a grown-up? I'm a Christian. I live in the New Testament. I live in the days when things are mature, at least as mature as they're going to get until Jesus comes back. I mean, we've got the new revelation. That. Now watch out, this is an Old Testament person talking, okay? This is job security talk for me. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you try to live your life out of this much of the Bible, you are going to mess up your life. Because God did not give us the appendix to the Bible, the New Testament, to have you ignore the body of the Bible, the Old Testament. This was given as the final chapter, yes, but not as the replacement of this. It was given to give us eyeglasses to see the earlier parts, yes, but it was not given to us so that we might throw away the older part. Remember, Jesus' Bible was this. And so when you live your whole life out of a number of epistles of Paul and a couple of Gospels, and you wonder why you're, maybe your spiritual life is a little impoverished, you might want to take a look at the rest of the thing. Besides, I have to try to convince you of that so that I can keep my job going as an Old Testament teacher. So it isn't that we throw away the lessons of the earlier age at all. 
uh, there's an analogy, I think, that will help with this. You know how it is with two-year-olds that you teach them certain household rules like don't touch the stove, um, don't put oatmeal in the VCR, uh, okay? <laughs> and the way you do that is you say, don't you touch the TV, right? Don't touch the TV. Or you tell them, don't go in the street, okay? And if those are very strict rules. I can remember with our young daughter, those were, the, especially the one going in the street, was like the utter, uh, the utter rule. Do not go in the street, Okay. Well, imagine you've taught your child this and the lesson's been learned well and they survive. <laughs> and, uh, and you actually, that child comes, goes off to university and comes back at 21 on Christmas break or something. And you're not feeling very well and you're sitting there early morning and you say, Sweetheart, would you mind cooking breakfast this morning? I'm just so beat. And she looks at you and says, I can't. And you say, well, why not? And you say, well, you told me not to touch the stove, Mom. <laughs> Uh, what would you think about that? Yeah, you would say, what would you say to her? You're 21, not two. What's wrong with you, right? Or if you sent your son off to get something at the, at the convenience store and he says, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I honor my parents. What do you mean? Well, you told me not to go in the street. I'm not going to go in the street. You told me that. Well, you say, come on now, you're 20 years old. Get with it. Okay, so... Your daughter says, okay, I'm 21, so I'll cook breakfast. So she comes out to cook breakfast in this big flowing robe that you gave her for Christmas. Okay, big old long sleeves hanging down. You're not paying much attention. You're reading newspaper or something. And all of a sudden, she starts screaming because her robe is on fire. Okay? And so you run, of course, and grab the fire extinguisher and put the fire out and everything. And the next breath, of course, you're screaming at her. What are you Thinking, cooking on the gas stove with that kind of robe on. I've told you a million times to be careful with stoves. I've told you a million times. How could you possibly do this? And she looks at you just as sincerely as she can. And she says, you never told me to be careful with stoves. You say to her, of course, yes, I did. Every single time I told you not to touch it. Every single time. And if your son runs out into the middle of the street chasing a ball at 22 and you see him almost get run over by a car, you're screaming at him, I told you that cars are dangerous. I told you, I told you. He said, you never told me that. And you say, yes, I did. Every time I told you to stay out of the street. I've been telling you that since you were two years old. Okay, so there it is, you see. That's the situation you live in right there. You're like the adult who no longer has to not go into the street and not touch the stove, but you must never forget the lessons that you were taught as a two-year-old, as an adult. That's the way it is when you look back at these older covenants. We're not going to return to those older covenants. Who would want to do that? That would be violating a book like the book of Hebrews, right? That says, don't turn away from the new covenant in Christ and go back to the days of sacrifices and things like that. You don't want to act like a two-year-old when you're 22 years old. But at the same time, as a 22-year-old, if you forget those two-year-old lessons, you're going to be in serious, serious trouble. So that's why we would want to review something like these covenants. So let's start off with the first one. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not God made a covenant with Adam, and we're going to kind of skip that because we've talked about what God did with Adam anyway. I should mention just one thing, and that was that even to Adam and Eve... God made the promise that Eve's seed would one day overcome the evil seed of the serpent. And that, of course, is the promise that, in Genesis chapter 3, that the human race would one day prevail. The human race would one day prevail. And that God would crush the serpent under the foot of the seed of Eve. And, of course, we know that that's ultimately fulfilled in the last Adam, the great human, Jesus who crushes Satan under his feet at the second coming, and as Paul says one day, will also crush Satan under our feet in Romans chapter 16, isn't it? But the first time the Bible uses the word covenant, actually uses the word covenant, is in the days of Noah. Noah. So we'll put a little Noah there. Noah is the first covenant, explicit covenant that's in the Bible. The second time God makes an explicit covenant with people is, can anybody tell me? 
Abraham. And then the third time that God makes special covenant with people is... One more between... That's sort of a reaffirmation of Abraham. Moses. Noah, Abraham, Moses. The next big one is... I'm sorry for the lack of perspective here. I just can't do it. David. And then ultimately... The final one is in in Christ. Yeah, okay. the new covenant in Christ. So what we want to do is to ask the question, how come? Why so many? Why didn't God just do it all at once? It's because he really was building a program. He really was step by step building this building called his kingdom. The first step is Noah. What did God do? With Noah. If there were one word that we would use maybe to describe this covenant, we could call it a covenant of preservation. Or another way of putting that is a covenant of stability. Because this is what God gave to the human race when he gave covenant to Noah. The covenant with Noah is found in the book of Genesis, two places, chapter 6 and then chapter 9. And in chapter 6, you know basically how the story goes. Um, and that is that God promises out of all the people in the world that he will pull Noah out from the flood, he'll keep him safe in the ark, and he will recreate the human race out of Noah. Strangely enough, when Noah comes out of the ark in chapter 9 and God begins to make covenant with him again right after the, after the flood, there's something strange that happens. Take a look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. I just want you to see why this covenant is given. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. This should sound familiar to you by now. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that remind you of anything? It's the job of the image of God. Why did God make this happen? Why did he make covenant with Noah? It was so that the human race could fulfill its role of bringing the kingdom through multiplication and dominion. So God makes this covenant. And well, what is this covenant about? Well, God shows great kindness. Remember the top of the box? Kindness from God. How does he show kindness? First by rescuing Noah and along with him the animals as well. You know, it's, it's a funny thing how we think about the Noah story. It's, I think often Christians think of Noah as the Dr. Doolittle of the Bible. You know, the guy who talks to the animals and they talk back, that guy. And, um, you know, it's just a little children's story and it's sweet and it's cute. I mean, there's hardly a Christian nursery that doesn't have some symbol of the Noah story in it, right? An ark or two giraffe on the wall or um, uh, a, a rainbow, you know, you name, show me a Christian nursery that doesn't have one of those symbols in it and it'll be an odd, an odd, odd nursery. And so we tend to think of this as a childhood story, one for little kids. But in the Bible, the story of Noah is not for kids. It's rated... Um, is it NC-17? Is that what it's called now? It's, it's a bad kind of movie. It's very violent and very sexual, in fact. Okay? And you know this by reading the chapters that precede Genesis 6, where God makes covenant with Noah. You know the sorts of things that happen. Adam and Eve sin, and God is saying, well, I'm going to prevail. The human race is going to prevail over sin. It'll be okay. And so they start prevailing over sin, right? No, on the contrary. The very next thing that happens is Cain kills his brother Abel. Look at what's happened to the human race. The human race that was designed to multiply and be glorious over the world is now killing itself. Cain kills his brother Abel. And Seth replaces Abel. And he has this line of holy, righteous people. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, we're like that. But then Cain's line also grows. Cain becomes very sophisticated. He builds a city. He is, his descendants uh, invent all kinds of wonderful technologies according to the genealogy. But then we find that they become extraordinarily violent. If you look at chapter 5 and you look at the genealogy of uh, chapter 4, the genealogy of Cain, you find that Cain, who began that genealogy, murdered his brother. But at the end of that genealogy is a man whose name is Lamech. And Lamech is a murderer. 
And he actually sings a song and celebrates his murder. This is how much this is a, an X-rated show. Listen to what Lamech says in verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech, this is at the end of Cain's line, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wise of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You see, people had not just become murderers, they had actually become people who celebrate their exploits. If there was ever anything that was true of Egyptian culture against which this book, Genesis, was written, it was that they celebrated their great murderous affairs. Um, I was um, one of about a million consultants on this um, Prince of Egypt cartoon, you know, the, the Moses cartoon. Uh, my seminary tried to make a big deal out of it. It wasn't any big deal. It was just the best part was I got to ride in a limousine. Okay, <laughs> and um, and I got and I got to jog past Madonna's house. That was the coolest part of it. Okay, um, but um, but it was fun to go out there into DreamWorks and to see what was going on. And I remember as they were doing these uh, cartoon hieroglyphics. If you ever saw that film, they, the hieroglyphics become alive, and uh, they start showing the story of the persecution of the Israelites. They actually become living figures, and they show them throwing the babies in, the crocodiles eating the babies, and things like that. And, and it was absolutely correct. I mean, that was a good way to characterize those hieroglyphics because many of them, not just in Egypt, but Babylon too, what kings would do is they would write about all the thousands and thousands of people that they killed, how merciless they were, how they just butchered their babies and fed them to the fires and all this, that, and the other. And it's like they're singing great songs and putting them up in the temples and putting them up in their palaces in, in great inscriptions celebrating what they had done to their fellow human beings, that Islamic. That is what happened to the human race. I'm just glad it's not that way anymore. You know, we're civilized now. We don't play band. Bands don't get out on the corner and start playing. And we don't make songs about bombing people. You, know, you bomb us, just wait to see what we do to you. Uh, that's one of the most popular songs in the last couple of years, you know. We don't do those kinds of things where we sing the joys and the pleasures of destroying other human beings. Of course not. We're civilized. We're sophisticated. Of course, I'm lying. We do it all the time. And we think to ourselves, if Cain was protected seven times, then 77 times for us, God will protect us too. Imagine yourself as an extraterrestrial. Okay, Just imagine that for a minute. And you're trying to decide if you're going to inhabit this planet and your job as the explorer is to listen in on television and radio just to see what it would be like to be here with these people, with these creatures. Uh, what would you conclude? They're preoccupied with deodorants. That's one thing. And toothpaste. <laughs> and they're preoccupied with destroying themselves. They're bent on self-destruction. Uh, let me just put it to you this way. What do you have to do to destroy the things in your life? I mean, you're a Christian, much less for unbelievers. Um, what do you have to do to destroy your family? Just be yourself. And what would you have to do to destroy this church? All the work that has gone into building this church, Jim, over all these years. Some of you maybe have been here longer than they have. What would have to happen for this church to just... You know, just fade into a non-existence. Practically nothing. Just be yourselves with each other. That's how bent we are on self-destruction. And the reality is, is that until we understand that without God intervening, that's what we will do to ourselves. We will never see the wonder of the kindness that God is showing when he makes covenant with Noah. And he says... I'm going to pick you out and I am going to make a new world out of you. God was so grieved by the way that the world had become that he actually decided to destroy his image. 
Remember how we said earlier, when you asked that question of what about hell and those kinds of things? You see, there's a great responsibility that's given to the human race. And if you take a look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, I want you to notice what it is that just got God so upset. The Lord said in verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I hope that those words are more dramatic to you, having heard the earlier talk this morning, than they may have been in the past. This is God saying, I'm going to wipe my image off the face of the earth. I'm that grieved with them. I'm that disturbed by what they've done to themselves. I mean, what would it take for you? What would it take for you to ever wish for the death of your children? Can you imagine how evil they'd have to become for you to wish that? I mean, it's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? I, can't, I mean, I cannot imagine I would wish for her to be redeemed or wish for her to be changed but, and maybe even imprisoned to keep her from hurting people, but I wouldn't want her to be killed. I mean, that would be the last thing that would come to a father or a mother's mind. But here is the Creator, the Lord, saying, I'm so sick of this, they have turned so sour that I'm going to destroy them. But one man, Noah, found favor. And what good did God do through all of this? In chapter 9... God brings Noah through the flood. He comes out. He offers the sacrifice. And then God is very pleased with the sacrifice. Listen to what God says to Noah. Chapter 9, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. I'm never going to curse the cosmos because of humanity even though they're evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. We learn later in the Bible this means not by a flood, but by fire. And then God makes this wonderful statement here. As long as the earth endures, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. That, you see, is the great kindness that God gave in the days of Noah. A stable world. A universe you could count on. Day and night, summer and winter, cold and heat. They'll never cease. Uh, let me put it to you this way. Aren't you glad you can mess up on Monday and you've got Tuesday to go apologize for it? Aren't you glad the sun's going to come up tomorrow unless things are really strange and Jesus returns or something bizarre like that? You're going to have tomorrow to try again? Isn't that a wonderful thing? The stability and the regularity of life, it was for Noah absolutely magnificent. Here he is. He spent 150 days, according to the story, in an ark with a bunch of animals and his family. Now, I think you know that Noah and his sons and his wife and his daughters-in-law, they knew they were still sinners, living 150 days together in an ark. Don't you think they had some squabbles? Um, like, ah, who wants to clean the elephant stall? I don't want to do that. You know, they're arguing about who has to do the elephants, right? Okay, so it's a horrific event. He knows that he's coming out of this thing, seeing, looking at the earth, seeing the destruction that's been there, seeing the hopefulness, but at the same time realizing that every inclination of his own heart and the hearts of his children, evil from the day one, from birth. And so what hope could the human race possibly have that God would not strike everything down once again? I mean, how soon would they turn sour again? Well, he planted a vineyard and you know what happens. And if God had not made this promise, then... He would have destroyed the earth again and destroyed them again and destroyed them again and destroyed them again. So what hope did the human race have? Stability in nature. Patience from God. I'm going to give them time. I'm going to give them the opportunity to live and to breathe and to build generation to generation in a stable world. 
Oh, yeah, there are going to be times when I'll come and I'll crush particular ones because they get so bad, like Sodom and Gomorrah, places like that. But I'm never again going to wipe them all out. Mm -mm. I'm going to give the human race its opportunity. What a great, great blessing. Stability in nature. Noah considered it a blessing. You and I consider it boring. Before, my wife and I and daughter lived in Orlando. We lived in Jackson, Mississippi for four years. We did not have a single person come visit us except my mother. Okay, for four years. We moved to Orlando and all of a sudden we're getting these phone calls. Rich, it's been so long since we've seen you. We've been thinking about you, praying about you. We hear you're living in Orlando now. It's one of those subtext things again. Uh, so when are you going to invite us to come down? Oh, we had just tons and tons of friends once we moved to Orlando and they would always say the same thing. Oh, it's such a hard life. You're sacrificing so much for Jesus. Disney and the beach every weekend. We know you're really suffering for Christ down there in Orlando. Of course, they don't understand. Orlando is just like every other place once you live there for a week. But the reality is, is that that shows where our ideals are, what we consider the good life. We consider the good life the beach, vacation, Hollywood-style living, parties all the time. No responsibility, something surprising and exciting every moment of your life. And getting up every morning, going to the same office every day, working with the same people every day, cleaning the same dishes for the same kids, changing the same diapers over and over and over again, we consider a curse, when in reality it is one of the greatest blessings we've had. It is God's gift to his royal dignified image that his image might prevail and without it you don't have a chance and if you don't believe the stability of your life the regularity the predictability of your life is a gift if you think getting up in the morning is a curse that alarm going off at 5.30 every single morning well then ask somebody who can't get out of bed anymore if it's a curse If you think changing diapers or disciplining those same children over and over and over again for the same problem is boring and a curse, then ask someone who can't have children or who's lost their children. You'll know it's not a curse then. What a great gift God gave us in this covenant with Noah. The blessing of stability. Now, the Lord does come back to Noah right here in this very same chapter, chapter 9. And he says, now, listen, there's this responsibility you have to be faithful to me. And he says, murderers will have to be punished. And he says that you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that. So there are requirements of loyalty here. But what a great covenant of kindness. I hope you can see that because without the world and the shape that is in that God has given to us, we don't have a chance of making it. It's time for us to change our attitudes toward work, toward the regularity of life. It's time to change from seeing these things as curses to great opportunities so that we can live with dignity. And what was the sign of this covenant with Noah? Yeah, the bow, the rainbow. And some of you might even remember the old King James Version in chapter 9 where it says, I will set my bow in the sky. Do you remember that? Or in the clouds. I will set my bow in the clouds. And that's because the Hebrew word is there, keshet, is the normal word for bow. It's a bow and arrow kind of bow, okay? It's not a special word for rainbow. It's a bow. And that's because, just like many gods in the ancient Near East did, sorry, Cordell, our God has a bow also. And our God has arrows. What's the, what are his arrows? Uh, well, think of the Psalms. Psalm 18? Children. No, they're, they're our arrows. What's God's arrows? Lightning. Yes, that's true. Metaphorically, it is. That's right, yeah. But the association of the bow in the sky and the storm, the lightning, are his arrows. So he shoots his arrows during the storm, and then when the storm is over, he puts his bow in the sky. And the symbolic quality of this, of course, is that it's not pointing toward us anymore. It's a sign of peace. It's, a sign. it's okay. I'm not going to destroy the whole world. I'm not going to destroy the whole world. 
And yes, I know that if you got it at the right angle, you see it's a circle. And it's a circle, by the way, around the throne of God, too. It's interesting. But in Revelation chapter 4. But here is the bow. Let me, let me encourage you this way. Um, if you ever walk outside and you look up in the sky after a storm and you see a rainbow like this, you should run. Okay? It's not a good sign. That means more is coming. Serious business is about to take place because the warrior is coming. He's riding on his chariot and he's coming in judgment. But the bow in the sky tells us that we no longer have to dream of somewhere over the rainbow. We live under the mercy of God, under the rainbow. I like Wizard of Oz, okay? But you know what it, you know, it's all this dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. And what's the point of the Wizard of Oz? Click, 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 click. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like earth. There's no place like earth. There's no place like earth. Life under the rainbow. It's your destiny. It's who you are to rule over the earth. Ah, I like covenants. And with Noah, we stop because the next one, which is the next talk, is when we move into the covenants that were made special with Israel and then with us as the church. Okay, Starting with Abraham, Moses, David, and then Christ. But I wanted to give you just the basic orientation toward the stability of life and the wonder and joy it is to be the image of God in a world that's predictable and stable and gloriously, gloriously arranged for us. All for you. Imagine such a thing.